Alcha. Hello and welcome. Welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 8, Parks and Walks. I'm Marion Jones. We're going out and about today into some of the loveliest corners in the city of Edinburgh itself and to a couple of places outside which you will certainly be looking up longingly at from the city centre and which perhaps, if you're fit enough, you'd like to walk up and take a proper look at. When I was in Edinburgh on my research trip, I bought quite a lot of guidebooks, one of which was a little £2.50, I think it cost, number from the tourist office called Edinburgh on Foot. And on the back came the following words. Welcome to Edinburgh, one of the most beautiful of European cities. This is a small city with places of interest and beauty closely packed and it is best explored on foot. So yes, that's my inspiration. And I think it's true. The distances from one interesting place to another in Edinburgh are not that great. Although I do have to add, it's often quite hilly. So you need a certain level of fitness and quite a lot of the streets are cobbled, in the old town at least, so sensible footwear as well. But the rewards are great. You can wander past, for example, the historical tenements of the Royal Mile or the Georgian splendour of the new town. There'll be stunning scenery just if you look up and around Salisbury Crags, Colton Hill. And every now and then you turn a corner and you will see, yes, a view of the castle or perhaps the National Monument set against the skyline. So, going to start with a couple of ideas for walks around the town, linger in a couple of parks and then go out and about a little further from the city centre. One of the very easiest walks, perhaps the one you might do on your very first morning there and for which you absolutely don't need a map, would be up or down, or indeed both, the Royal Mile. There are sites aplenty, pubs and tea rooms aplenty, you've got a blockbuster site at each end, the castle at the top, Holyrood Palace, and of course the Parliament, Holyrood, at the bottom. You could easily spend a day doing just that. Maybe popping down into one or two of the closes off the Royal Mile as well. But that is by no means all of the old town, and I'm going to describe a loop that you could easily do You perhaps need a map to follow one or two of the road names, but which will show you quite an array of different things. So you can start up by the castle, and then you need to find a way to get down to the south of the city, perhaps along Kingstables Road, which will take you down to the Grass Market, which has long been one of the central features of Edinburgh. It was originally a cattle market, started in, I think, about the 15th century, and still used as such right up until the early 1900s. It was also, I'm afraid, the site of the gallows, or at least one of the gallows sites, a place where crowds would gather when there was to be a public hanging, or at least a certain sort of public hanging. The higher ranks would be executed at Mercat Cross, and this site here in the grass market was reserved for the execution of thieves and murderers, the less political executions perhaps. And all of this made it quite a rough area, somewhere where you could come across an illegal cockfight perhaps, the place where Deacon Brodie did his gambling, the place where Burke and Hare lived, the two murderers, who killed people for cash. They sold the bodies to local doctors for experimentation in the laboratories so they could learn their trade. They often traded with a Dr Knox, and the local rhyme from the time goes like this. Burke's the butcher, Hare the thief, Knocks the boy who buys the beef. And another indication that this wasn't the, shall we say, nicest area of Edinburgh, comes from, of all sources, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, 
the novel by Muriel Spark, set in Edinburgh. If you don't know the book, she's a school teacher, a rather strange one in many ways, who, in this particular scene, decides that she will take her girls into an area of Edinburgh that they won't know because she thinks it's good for them to find out what's there. The girls are described as being violet-clad because they're going along in their smart private school coats. And Muriel Spark explains this was the first time that really any of them had seen this part of Edinburgh. And she describes how some boys shouted out at them words, and I'm quoting, which the girls had not heard before, but rightly understood to be obscene. So that would have been in the 1930s. But there were also some touches of class. There was, for example, the White Hart Inn, still there today, a lovely colourful looking pub with lots of flowers outside, and believed to have been perhaps the oldest inn in Edinburgh. It's known that Robert Burns stayed there, as did William and Dorothy Wordsworth on their trip to the city, so a touch of class here and there. And what you'll find today in the grass market is a crowded area, lots of pubs and restaurants, good place for an evening out. But if you're on a walk, you can go along to the other end from the castle and take a left along Victoria Street, one of the city's most picturesque little areas. Think coloured facades, archways, cobbles, really very photogenic. It was in fact originally called Bow Street, built from 1829 and finished in the mid-1830s, coinciding then with the coronation of Queen Victoria. So its name was changed to Victoria Street. The buildings are definitely worth a look, imitation old Flemish style, a terrace along at first floor level, there are steps to climb up to it at places, and then archways underneath, which gradually became shops. And today, if you're looking for an independent bookshop, you want to buy some tweed or some artisanal cheese, this is the place to go. It's got a joke and magic shop too, called Aha Ha Ha. And at number 40, you will find Diagon House selling, of course, Harry Potter merchandise. It is said that this pretty little curved street, which works its way uphill, was for J.K. Rowling the inspiration for Diagon Alley in the Harry Potter books. I don't know if that's true. I do know that she wrote at least the first volume here in Edinburgh, and that it is quite likely that she based her idea for Hogwarts on the nearby George Heriot School, a huge and imposing affair with a quadrangle and four towers with turrets, a clock tower, etc. If you see that, I think you do find yourself thinking, ah yes, Hogwarts. So, we'll wander along to the end of Victoria Street then, and then you can turn right onto the George IV Bridge, which crosses over the Cowgate, both to the left and the right, so maybe have a little look either way, because Cowgate is another famous Edinburgh location, so named because it was the road along which people from the country drove their cows on their way to the market at the Grass Market. In the 15th century, apparently, it was actually known as Via Vacarum, which is Latin for the way of the cows. Genitive plural, if you did any Latin at school. It had a moment in the 16th century of being somewhere a little more refined to settle, so there were some nice mansions built by nobles, town councillors, that sort of person. But in the 18th century, as covered in a previous episode, the new town was built, and so anyone with any money set off over there which left this part of Edinburgh becoming definitely a less well-off area, prone to overcrowding. And that was exacerbated in the 19th century with the arrival of many immigrants from Ireland. Particularly in the 1840s, they were fleeing the potato famine at home, and so many of them made their home here in this part of Edinburgh that it became known as Little Ireland. 
So the church there is, of course, St. Patrick's Church, still a working church today, and with an interesting little piece to its history. In the 19th century, there was an Irish parish priest at this church who decided he would found a football team so that his lads could go and play teams from other churches in the city. And looking for a name, they hit on the idea of calling themselves Hibernians, that being the Latin for Ireland. You probably recognise the name because, yes, that team is still going strong, known as Hibernians or Hibs. And I have to confess, I did not know that they were an Edinburgh team until I started researching for this episode. Cowgate today is, I think you have to say, not the prettiest area of the city. I've seen it described as being dark and a little gloomy. Much of it somehow ended up below street level when the viaducts of the Georgia Fourth Bridge were built. So that doesn't help, and I noticed in the rough guide they use the term slightly insalubrious to describe it. What it actually is today, I think, is very much a student area, student lodgings, loads of pubs and clubs, and somewhere that plays a big role in the Edinburgh Festival, where rooms and venues used for other things throughout the year become pop-up comedy theatres or concert halls. I think it's definitely worth a walk through. So if you came off George Fourth Bridge and turned right into Cowgate, make your way along, Look out then for a road up to the left called Candlemaker Row and make your way up there towards another Edinburgh institution, Greyfriars Church. You'll find that up on your right, just at the point where the road you're on, Candlemaker Row, and the road to the left, Georgia Fourth Bridge, meet. And at that V point where they meet is one of the most famous things in the whole of the city, a draw for all tourists, that being Greyfriars Bobby. It is a statue of a Sky Terrier modelled on a real dog, Bobby, and captioned as follows. Greyfriars Bobby died on the 14th of January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. I'm planning a future episode on Edinburgh cemeteries and ghost stories, and the tale of Bobby, I think, fits better there, along with other stories from Greyfriars Cemetery of grave robbing and its Harry Potter connection. For the moment, though, I would say it's worth popping in to have a look at the church itself, because Greyfriars Church is a name you will find if you're reading about Edinburgh's politics or religious history. It was built in 1620, the first church built in Edinburgh after the Reformation, and it was here in 1638 that the National Covenant was signed. So that was Edinburgh's Protestants, or Scotland's Protestants perhaps, defending their religion and their way of practising religion against the new ideas coming from down south. They thought some of Charles I's suggestions were a bit too Catholic, and they were having none of it. After Charles I, worse was to come, because Oliver Cromwell was in Edinburgh, and he used Greyfriars Church as a barracks. It's been badly damaged twice. In 1715, there was gunpowder stored underneath, which caught fire and blew the building up. Repairs were carried out, only for the whole thing to be badly damaged by fire, the inside at least, in the middle of the 19th century. So, once you've had a look round Greyfriars Church, I would suggest carry on up Candlemaker Row and make your way using a map to George Square. Roads like Bristol Place and Potter Row will take you there. And when you get there, what you're looking at is from the 18th century, an alternative posh bit. So most of the people with any money moved out at that period to the newly being built new town, to the north of the Royal Mile, but here, to the south, was another little piece of territory, where a square was built, and named after King George III. 
That's the reason, in fact, why there isn't a George III square in Newtown. This one came first, the name was kept, and so the two main squares in the first new part of Edinburgh were called after King George's wife, Charlotte, and after the patron saint of Scotland, St Andrew. It's a pretty square to walk round. It's had a lot of famous inhabitants. Think Walter Scott, Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame. Someone whose name you might not immediately recognise, Peter Mark Roger. He was an Edinburgh doctor, but he seems to have a lot of spare time because he invented the slide rule and he also wrote a book which we still use today, namely Roger's Thesaurus. There's a plaque too to Robert Louis Stevenson, which reads as follows. In honour of Robert Louis Stevenson, 1850-94, to poet, author of Treasure Island, kidnapped, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, and alumnus of the university. So if you go today, what you'll find is a pretty square. You're at the centre of Edinburgh University territory. There are central gardens, which, strictly speaking, are private, I think. They often are open, particularly during the festival weeks when they get hung with fairy lights and filled with big tents and stages for folk concerts and comedy shows and all the other things that make up Edinburgh Festival. If you want to do some more walking, you can find on the map East Meadow Park and West Meadow Park, just up from George Square, or you could return to Edinburgh Castle Way, where you started the walk, via Lauriston Place perhaps, where you can see the George Heriot School, the one that we think Hogwarts was modelled on. So then, a different walk, one in the new town. Again, it's easy to do a little wandering up and down the three main streets, George Street, Queen Street and Prince's Street, and perhaps taking in some of the crisscross streets too. Again, that area is bookended by two lovely places to visit, namely Charlotte Square and St Andrew Square. But once you've seen some of that, it's a good idea to wander a little further, where you will find something described by the Rough Guide as, quote, an extraordinary grouping of squares, circuses, terraces, crescents and parks that display a restrained symmetry. So I've got three ideas for extending that walk a little bit. You could start by going to look at what you might call the second phase of Newtown, a little bit north from St Andrew's Square, perhaps go along Dublin Street and over Drummond Place, and to the Royal Crescent. Very Georgian, very elegant. If you go a little west from there, you'll find three parallel streets called Great King Street, Northumberland Street and Cumberland Street. And they're interesting because they were designed together for three different purposes. Great King Street was to be the residence for upper-class people, Northumberland Street for the middle class and Cumberland Street for what I saw described as the artisan class. And if you go a little further west again, you'll find some more highlights from the 1820s, the Royal Circus, and Murray Place, a beauty in its own right and with various lovely terraces coming off it, with names like Dune Terrace and Ainsley Place. All of this, the whole of Murray Place and everything that comes off it, was designed as one entity, all built for the Earl of Murray and described somewhere I saw as the grandest townhouses in Edinburgh. And from Murray Place, as you'll see on a map, it's a very short hop back to Charlotte Square. A second idea, if you want to venture a little further north from the Royal Circus, you can go to an area of the city known as Stockbridge. It's really the bit between the new town and the Botanic Gardens. And a wander around there will take you past Fett's College, which I believe is Tony Blair's old school, and to the Botanic Gardens. 
It's also the part of town where you will find the river coming from the harbour, known as the Water of Leith. And another nice thing to do is to follow that all the way to the harbour in Leith. A pretty, quite countrified walk, where you may well see ducks and swans and maybe an otter or a kingfisher. And thirdly, another way to extend your walk would be west of Charlotte Square and Murray Place to Dean Village. Described as follows in the Edinburgh on Foot booklet that I mentioned at the start of the episode. An old mill village on the water of Leith, once an independent centre for baking, with eleven water mills and two granaries, but long since swallowed up by the spread of Edinburgh. So again, a nice place to wander. It's got its own cathedral, St Mary's, which I note does lunchtime concerts quite regularly. Think then cobbled streets, pubs, independent shops, and converted mills and converted granaries, which are now little shops or designer housing. It's also the place where you will find the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. So, so much for walks around the city. wanted to mention next the two loveliest places to sit and while away a little time. The Biggest Park, Princes Street Gardens and the Royal Botanic Gardens. So, Princes Street Gardens then. Idyllic it is, a little area between the old town and the new town, created when the loch was drained and originally as a private park for the residents of Princes Street but from 1876 onwards, a public park. It sort of falls into two halves. There's East Princess Street Gardens, that's the bit with the Scott Monument in it, a bit nearest the railway station, Waverley Station, named after Sir Walter Scott's novel. And then there's West Princess Street Gardens, on the other side of the mound. The mound, by the way, has the Royal Scottish Academy and the National Gallery of Scotland on it. And at the far end of the Western Princess Street Gardens, you will be very close to the castle. So, a place to wander and enjoy flowers and trees, quite popular with tourists, but popular too with office workers who tip out in the middle of the day to just relax and enjoy. And full of statues and monuments, particularly, of course, the Scott Monument, built in 1846. I think the largest monument anywhere to a writer, Gothic Spire. I've seen it described actually as the Gothic Rocket. It is primarily a monument to Walter Scott, but there is mention made too of 16 other Scottish writers, Robert Burns, the poet Ferguson, and, less something I was expecting, Mary Queen of Scots, because amongst all the other things she did, she wrote pamphlets too. So there may be 16 writers mentioned, but there are no fewer than 64 characters from the Waverley novels written by Sir Walter Scott mentioned on the statue. There's a central plinth with the statue of Scott himself, there are 280-something, I think it is, steps that you can climb up to the top. You could stop off at level one, where there's a little museum, stained glass windows to St Andrew and St George, one with the coat of arms for Edinburgh on it, one with the coat of arms for Scotland, and the chance to listen to extracts of Scott's work as well. If you make your way up to the top, you'll get the views, of course. And when I was reading about the monument, the question I kept coming up against was, why is it black? Is it actually just dirty? So looking for the answer to that, I came upon the idea that yes, actually, really, it is just dirty, lots of soot. And it isn't that no one's thought about cleaning it. It's that they have decided that because of what it's made of, it would be damaged very easily and it's best to just leave it as it is. There are lots of other statues to find too on your way round. Famous Scots like David Livingstone, for example, and quite a lot of military statues. There was one to the Royal Scots Greys, 
There's one dating from 1927 called the Scots-American War Memorial, paid for by Americans with Scottish roots who wanted to honour the Scottish troops who had served in World War I. And there is even one of my favourites, a bronze statue of Wojtek, who was a bear. A bear who apparently served, think of that as being in inverted commas, in the Polish military in World War II. And Wojtek ended his days in Edinburgh Zoo, hence the fact that his statue is here. So think flowers, including a big floral clock, views of the castle, a memorial fountain to Queen Victoria, and just really lots of little paths to have a look down and seats to sit on. Very nice. Then there is the Royal Botanic Gardens, which I personally didn't get time to go and see, but which I read about in a book called Only in Edinburgh by Duncan J.D. Smith. His entry on the botanics, as the gardens are called in Edinburgh, starts like this. When Edinburgh's busy streets get too hectic, there is no better place to retreat than the Royal Botanic Garden in Inverleith. Located one mile north of the city centre, these historic 26 hectares provide not only a tranquil place to unwind, but also a fascinating world-class centre of botanical science. And, unlike its English counterpart at Kew, entry, except for the glass houses, is free. And it does sound idyllic. Set up in the 17th century by two doctors, Robert Sibbald and Andrew Balfour, who'd been travelling extensively all over Europe, seen some interesting things and decided that what they wanted to do when they got back to Edinburgh was set up a garden in order to train other doctors in the use of herbal remedies. It's massively expanded since then, notably in the 19th century, as Duncan Smith describes, with, quote, the British Empire, with Scottish plant hunters crisscrossing the globe for new and unusual species. David Douglas, for example, went to North America and brought back the Douglas fir. Robert Fortune went to China with the British East India Company and brought back Chinese tea plants. And one George Forrest apparently brought back more than 30,000 plant specimens. Result, today there are nearly 15,000 different species from all over the world growing here. Lots of different areas, a rock garden, a woodland garden, a plants and people house with rainforest plants in it, and an area called the Chinese hillside, which has the largest collection of Chinese plants outside China itself. So then, lots of ideas for things to do in Edinburgh itself. What about popping out to one of those two beautiful hills that you can see from the city centre, Arthur's Seat or Carlton Hill? Let's start with Arthur's Seat, the highest point in Edinburgh, 823 feet high apparently, actually built on a volcano site. You'll be pleased to know it was last active 350 million years ago. It is a bit of a climb. You start near Hollywood Park or the Parliament. There are pathways up it. There are pathways all around it too, actually. So it's not just about climbing up the one way if you're feeling like a little bit more exploring than that. But if you do get up to the summit, of course, what you will get is the views. Views which the rough guide tells us might just stretch to the English border and the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, you will be surveying Edinburgh, Holyrood Park, the castle, Colton Hill, and a little further away, the Firth of Forth. Dorothy Wordsworth was up there in September 1803, and she wrote a diary entry describing how it was quite a wet day, and they went through many streets, as she put it, to Holyrood House, and thence to the hill called Arthur's Seat, a high hill, very rocky at the top, and below covered with smooth turf on which sheep were feeding. She very much enjoyed the view from the top, particularly 
looking over towards the castle, describing it like this. The castle rock looked exceedingly large through the misty air. A cloud of black smoke overhung the city, which combined with the rain and mist to conceal the shapes of the houses, an obscurity which added much to the grandeur of the sound that proceeded from it. It was impossible to think of anything that was little or mean, the goings-on of trade, the strife of men, or everyday city business. The impression was one, and it was visionary, like the conceptions of our childhood of Baghdad or Balsora, when we have been reading the Arabian Nights entertainments. So then, a view which definitely made a big impression on Dorothy Wordsworth. She then describes setting up there in the rain for quite a long time, before returning through the flat green fields, as she called them, past the grounds of Holyrood House, on the edge of which, as she put it, stands the old roofless chapel of venerable architecture. I'm quite surprised she didn't wax more lyrical about that, because it is a highly romantic, utterly beautiful ruin. The area between Arthur's Seat and Hollywood Palace was the site in the 19th century of quite a few military reviews by Queen Victoria. She would come along to inspect her troops. And we have a description of that, written by one James Grant in a book called Old and New Edinburgh. I think he must have been there at the time because he describes a great stand being put up, able to hold 3,000 people, and also, quote, the Royal Standard of Scotland, a splendid banner, 25 yards square, floated from the summit of Arthur's seat, while a multitude of other standards and snow-white bell tents covered all the inner slopes of the crags. By one o'clock, all the regiments were in Edinburgh and defiled into the park by four separate entrances at once and were massed in contiguous close columns formed into divisions and brigades of artillery, engineers and infantry. So really quite a sight. And one which the author thought will never be forgotten by those who were there. There were a hundred thousand spectators gathered to watch. They made the whole place ring with their reiterated cheers. The weather was kind, it was nice and sunny, and, as James Grant describes it, every foot of ground upon the northern slopes, not too steep, standing on was occupied even to the summit where the mighty yellow standard with the red lion floated out over all. So really quite a sight and all waiting until the moment when the Queen arrived, which she did, accompanied by Prince Albert and her mother, the Duchess of Kent, and several of her children. The sight was magnificent, says the author. More than two and twenty thousand rifles and many hundred sword blades flashed out the royal salute and then the arms were shouldered as she drove slowly along the lines of massed columns. The ground was kept by the 13th Hussars, the 29th Regiment, the 78th Highlanders, and the West York Rifle Militia. The Queen seemed in the highest spirits, wore a tartan dress, and bowed and smiled as the volunteers passed the saluting point in quick time, to the number of 150 regiments, the Highland Corps being played past by the pipers of the Rosshire Buffs. Really quite an event. So yes, I definitely recommend, if you're up to it, climbing up Arthur's seat, and if not, certainly going along to the foot and enjoying the scenery, all the while remembering that you're only five minutes' walk from the Scottish Parliament, and not much further from the very centre of the Royal Mile. And finally then, a different hill to climb, Carlton Hill, just a few minutes' walk from the station. If you go along and use a map and find the junction of Waterloo Place and Regent Road, you will find a staircase there which you can climb up towards the top. Enjoy an equally spectacular view 
and see some rather interesting monuments. The Nelson Monument, for a start, built in 1815 to celebrate the famous naval victory of Trafalgar by one Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson. 106 feet high, you can climb up that too, I think it's 170 steps, and again, panoramic views all over the city. It is here that every year, even today, on the 21st of October, the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar is commemorated. Naval flags are hung from the monument, and being naval flags, they signal a message, and the message is, what else but, quote, England expects every man to do his duty. Although, frankly, in this context, perhaps it would be better if it said, Britain expects. Anyway, Nelson's best-known saying, the one he used to rally his sailors, there is an observatory up there too, inspired by Greek architecture, was once the Royal Observatory of King George IV. It's quite a splendid building, although it hasn't been used as an observatory since 1895, when, rather sadly, it was decided that the pollution of Victoria in Edinburgh was interfering with stargazing. Perhaps the best-known monument up there is the National Monument, the one which you can say looks Greek in style, and actually that's not just a figure of speech, because it was indeed originally intended to be a copy of the Greek Parthenon in Athens. It was going to be put up to serve as a tribute to the fallen from the Napoleonic Wars. This was in 1826. It was going to be a church up above and catacombs below for the tombs. However, it was never completed. The money ran out. This was quite a scandal in Edinburgh at the time. Of course, a lot of people appeared who wanted to say they'd told you so all along. It was never going to happen. And the result is that there are now two unofficial titles for this monument. One is Edinburgh's Folly and the other is Scotland's Disgrace. But whatever you think of that, it still remains true that it's one of the landmarks of the city centre, something you keep seeing from different angles and second only, perhaps, to the castle itself. But perhaps most of all, it's for the view that you would climb up Colton Hill. From there, you can gaze on Arthur's seat, you can follow the line of the Royal Mile all through the city, and here, just to finish off, is a description from The Traveller's Reader in Edinburgh, edited by David Deitches. This is from an introduction to one of the sections, so I'm guessing Mr Deitches wrote it himself. So here he is, up on Colton Hill. Quote, the spectator views, in succession, the endless range of streets which comprise the new town, bounded by the Corstophine Hills, the Firth of Forth with the distant mountains, the town and harbour of Leith, Musselburgh Bay, terminated by North Berwick Law, Arthur's Seat and Salisbury Crags, with Holyrood House in the plain beneath, and lastly, the darkened masses of the old town, skirted and guarded on one side by the ancient citadel. And just to round off the episode, something a little unusual, known as Scotland's Democracy Trail, which, it turns out, is both a walk and a book. The walk was devised by Stuart McCarty and Donald Smith. There's a route for it, there's sometimes a chance to go on a walk guided by them, and they've written a book about it too, all about the route and the history of the democracy of Scotland as told through the sites of Edinburgh. Here's one of their descriptions. This walking tour tells a 500-year story of democracy in Scotland, much of it almost forgotten. Scotland's democracy trail goes from Edinburgh Castle, down the High Street, across North Bridge to Carlton Hill, and then on down to the Scottish Parliament at Holyrood. Apart from its historic significance, the route encompasses Edinburgh's most dramatic scenery and townscape.
It will take about two hours. It'll be partly on pavements and partly on tracks, but the sort of track it's reasonably easy to walk along. I had a look at the route. I noticed that it covered quite a lot of places I've talked about in earlier episodes in the context of the history of Edinburgh and of Scotland, places such as Parliament Square and Parliament House, St Giles, the Merkit Cross, Holyrood. It also mentions a good number of places I didn't cover, Old Carlton Burial Ground, for example, and Regent Road, where you can see the Burn statue and the Vigil plaque. More about that in a minute. Along the way, they do tell some stories which I did mention. That made me feel good. I've obviously on the right track. Stories like that of the Covenanters and the Stuart Kings and the Jacobite Risings, right up to the opening of Holyrood, the new Scottish Parliament. But again, they told lots of stories I didn't know. Something about James III in the 15th century and why he granted the citizens some rights to defend their freedoms in something called the Golden Charter about the hanging of convicted smuggler Andrew Wilson and why that led to such rioting in the city. That was in 1736, to do with people feeling their rights were being ignored, I think. There were some tales about the Edinburgh mob, who seemed to be on the rampage through most of the 18th century and who got particularly animated on the King's birthday, twice in the 1790s. And the story of Thomas Muir, a Scottish political martyr, of whom I'm ashamed to say I had not even heard, although I did feel a bit better when I read these words. It is a sad indictment of too many Scots' awareness of their own history that he, that's Thomas Muir, remains so little known in his native land. And the stories come pretty much up to date. For example, one on the 1990s, when there was a five-year vigil held, known as the Vigil for a Scottish Parliament. I think you'll be able to see the site where that was held and hear the eventually successful story of what it was they wanted. I enjoyed reading that one of the events of this, held in 1996, was something called Not the Garden Party, which was held at exactly the same time as the Garden Party, the Queen's Garden Party, at Holyrood. So, lots and lots of interest. As Duncan Smith says, we go right back to the medieval kings and queens and bring the whole story. The big story isn't really about a yes or no to nationalism, It's really all about the advance of democracy. So maybe you'll be interested to read the book. If you do, perhaps you'd like to try out the walk. And if you fancy going on a guided version, I suggest the first port of call would be the tourist office. Halfway up the Royal Mile, you can probably point you to the place where you can find out more about that. I hope I've left you with a clear impression that there are lots of enjoyable ways to wander in and around the city of Edinburgh. So I'll just briefly mention that next week's episode is going to be about some of the museums in the city, not any of the ones we've already been to, not the art galleries, because I'm saving those for a different episode, but the little collection of very interesting museums which are left, all of which give insights into the history of Edinburgh. So I hope that you'll join me for that. For the moment, I'm just going to sign off, attempting it in Gaelic again. Thank you and goodbye, which sounds, I believe, something like this. Tap, I leave. Agus Marshin Leaf. <laughs>